Yo, 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 it's your man's Big Daddy Roughneck. You're tuned into the Gary Brugman Podcast. Prepare to be entertained. Hello, America, and hello, Texas. This is Gary Brugman coming to you from the Alamo City, San Antonio, Texas. This week, we're going to go ahead and continue with uh, part two of the court trial. I'm going to go ahead and dedicate the shows to somebody from now on. I'll be doing that at the beginning of every episode. So grab a drink, grab some coffee, light a cigar, load your magazines, get comfortable, and let's get to it. Well, people, welcome to episode two. We made it this far. We made it here to episode two. Wow. I'm proud to announce that episode one, my debut episode, was such a success. My listeners have increased to seven. Seven listeners since episode one. This is fantastic. So what I'm saying is I want to hit 10, 10 loyal listeners by episode three. You think we could do that? So spread the word, like, share, do what you got to do to get me to 10 by uh, Thursday. That's when the next episode should drop, episode three. Moving on, um, I decided that I'm going to go ahead and dedicate the episodes to somebody at the beginning of uh, every episode moving forward. And um, nobody, nobody in particular, just people that mean a lot to me. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick them myself. So this week, I'm going to go ahead and dedicate this episode to uh, a police officer who um, I didn't know, but I remember the incident very well. It's uh, one of the things that made me want to be a cop and uh, get into law enforcement. Uh, it was a really sad incident. I'm going to go ahead and dedicate this to police officer Eddie Byrne. Eddie Byrne was a New York City police officer. He was born February 21st, 1966. He would have just turned 54 years old, but he was uh, ambushed while he was uh, protecting a, uh, a house in Jamaica, Queens in 1988, five days after his 22nd birthday. So the, he was a 22-year-old police officer assigned to protect a house and he got ambushed and he was shot in the head five times with a 38 caliber. And um, I remember the incident when it happened, it was a big deal. And they, they say that uh, as long as you never forget, people never die. So here we are 32 years later. And um, Eddie Byrne, you still live with us. Thank you for your service. Yeah, you mean a lot to me. And uh, let's call ahead and uh, call out your shield number. He was uh, New York City shield number 14072. 14072. Thank you, Eddie. And thank you to everybody out there that wears a badge and goes out every day. So I'm going to go ahead and read another chapter out of uh, Jocko Willink's book, uh, Discipline Equals Freedom Field, Field Manual. And this one's called Weakness. And um, this was another good little chapter. It's not very long, so bear with me. Uh, it says, Weakness. Do I have weakness? I am nothing but weakness. I am not naturally strong or fast or flexible. I am certainly not the smartest person in the world. And those of you that know me know that's all true. I get emotional over stupid things. I eat the wrong foods. I don't sleep enough. I procrastinate and waste time. I care too much about meaningless things and not enough about important things. My ego is too big. My mind is too small, often trapped inside itself. Now, all that being said, I have a saying, a person's strength is often their biggest weakness, but their weaknesses can become strengths. Me, I'm weak. In all those ways, I am weak, but I don't accept that. I don't accept that I am what I am and that that is what I am doomed to be. No, I don't accept that. I'm fighting. I'm always fighting. 
I'm struggling. I'm scraping and kicking and clawing at those weaknesses every day to change them, to stop them. Some days I win, but some days I don't. But each and every day I get back up and I move forward with my fist clenched towards the battle, towards the struggle. And I am with, and I fight with everything I've got to overcome those weaknesses and those shortfalls and those flaws that I strive to be just a little bit better every day, a little bit better than I was yesterday. So those of you that know me that know that that rings true to me. I'm not a, I've got a lot of uh, demons and darknesses that I deal with every day. And um, I just keep pushing forward because quitting is not in my vocabulary and it's not an option. And I know that God has a plan for me. I don't know what that plan is. I thought I, I thought I did, but I was wrong. But I won't stop looking for that purpose that he's got for me. I want to thank a couple of people, Lisa Smosa, for supporting my podcast every month. Thank you so much. MaximumAltitude.com, my brother Joey Max over here in San Antonio. If you're looking for any work done on your truck, any lifts, alignments, whatever it is, customization, check out at MaximumAltitude.com. And also my bros and broettes out there. Y'all mean the world to me. I couldn't have gotten this far without y'all every day. Um, even when I was in the university, which is what I call it, university, the academy, y'all took care of my mom. Y'all did everything that I needed you to do in my absence. I love you and thank you. So last last episode, I was talking about my um, my case, and I think I left off right at my court trial. But just to recap, I had... Uh, Chased a group of illegal aliens. I uh, was losing them. A trainee rookie agent caught the group. He didn't have it under control. I ran up, put my hand on my weapon. With the bottom of my foot, I pushed two illegal aliens from the squatting to the sitting position. And um, that was it. I asked them why they were running. They got transported. That was the end. Of that, that's all I knew about that. About six weeks later, we caught a load of dope. And... Um, there were seven smugglers. We got five. I chased two others, chased them through a barbed wire fence, got into a violent fight with one of them. One of them got away. This dude body slammed me on the ground, was choking me out. I was trying to keep him off me. Um, I thought I was going to die. I was losing the fight. So I punched him in the face and uh, I punched him on the side of the head and knocked him over. And he was grabbing at, at my gun belt. So I ended up breaking his nose. I punched him in the face and broke his nose. And um, he got sentenced to 57 months in prison. So a few weeks after that, approximately three weeks after that, I got taken off the line, got relieved of my weapon and put behind a camera for 18 months until my trial. During that whole time, nothing happened. Nobody ever spoke to me. I didn't see an investigator. I never told my side of the story. Nobody ever asked me what happened or anything. Uh, a few months after I got taken off the line in March of 2001, obviously six months later, 9-11 happened and I couldn't go in and help in any of the uh, rescue or participate in the protection of my country. I was just stuck behind a desk. So I finally ended up getting a letter and I didn't know what the case was because the first two names, there were two subjects. I thought... I was being investigated for breaking this dope smuggler's nose. And I, for the 18 months, I played it over and over in my head. What did I do wrong? The guy had me on the ground. He was smuggling dope. 
The guy had me on the ground. He body slammed me. He was choking me out. I thought I was going to die. In my mind, I had all rights to use deadly force and, and, and kill this person and take his life because I thought I was going to die, and that's not an option. But I couldn't get to my weapon safely. So I uh, I defended myself, and with, with, with the help of God, because I couldn't have gotten out of there myself, that was all God that gave me the strength to get out of there. I, I got out of it, and he ended up with a broken nose and in jail. I followed every procedure. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I finally get this letter saying that I'm the target of an investigation. And... Um, it says that it happened in January. The dope smuggler incident happened in February. And uh, it says the guy's name was Miguel Angel Jimenez Saldana, which was the guy I pushed on the ground, but I didn't realize that at the time because I thought that was actually like a non-incident because we push people on the ground all the time when they, when they don't cooperate. The dope smuggler's name was Miguel Angel Rodriguez Silva, which just totally blew my mind because it was just the same first two names. So the government had 18 months to prepare for this, and I had uh, about 30 days to find an attorney to, to defend me. And every attorney that I found wanted $50,000 retainer, $100,000 retainer, and um, I finally found one that I couldn't afford. And he was a good guy, he goes by the name of Ronald Tonkin. Um, obviously, I lost the case, but he was still a, a hell of a guy. And uh, we went to trial. So we get to trial. I had subpoenaed all my witnesses, which are my supervisors that I've worked with for the past uh, five years. And um, some other agents that I've worked with on the cases that, that were involved. So we get to trial. The trial was a five-day trial in October, towards the end of October, right before Halloween of 2002. So it started on a Monday morning. So Monday morning, we have a jury selection, and we go back and forth. We pick the jury. I was satisfied with the jury. And um, there was one guy that recused himself because he said that if I push an illegal alien on the ground that was here illegally, it just crossed the river, it's, it's open and shut. The guy shouldn't have been here. He got what he deserved. And I'm like, well, dude, stay on my side. But he got, he got uh, relieved of the position, so... But um, jury selection started at 8 in the morning, and by noon, they had already selected the jury. We adjourned for lunch, recess for lunch, I apologize, and the trial actually started at 1 p.m. on Monday. So the government's first witness was the trainee agent that uh, assisted me in the apprehension. Uh, I was at initially chasing the group, but I was losing them. And if you remember, the trainee agent caught the group, but they didn't have the situation under control. So this trainee agent testifies that um, I ran up and I kicked this guy to the ground and I punched him so hard in the ribs and in the stomach that he can hear the guy's breath coming out. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's actually the trial testimony. That's what he said. And then I grabbed... A second guy threw him on top of the first guy and continued to punch him. However, there was no second guy at the trial, but there was a second guy that I threw on top of the first guy and continued to punch him. And possibly some punches and kicks to a third guy. There was no third guy either. He said that he had never seen such brutality in all of his life, and if this, what, if this is what the Border Patrol was about, that he wanted no part of it. 
he would never have signed up if he knew that this was what the Border Patrol was about. But um, if you ask me, those just sound like words that the U.S. attorney put in, put in his head to testify to. Um, the illegal alien was the next witness. The illegal alien testified that I ran up to him and I put my foot on him and I knocked him to the ground and that I put my knee behind his head. And um, he couldn't remember what side I kicked him on. Could not remember what side I kicked him on. They asked, would he kick you in your left side, your right side? He goes, I don't remember. They asked him when my, when my attorney was cross-examining, my attorney asked me to stand up. I was at the defense table. He asked me to stand up. He asked this illegal alien, is this the man that kicked you? And the alien looked at me and said, I don't know. It wasn't like he, they asked him if the person that kicked him was in the room. He asked me to stand up. He was looking at me and he said he didn't know. He didn't see my face, which is fine. I never denied what I did because what I did was what I was taught. So the illegal alien says that, uh, oh, and when he first, going backtracking a little bit, I'm sorry, backtracking a little bit. When he first made the report, he said that I had kicked him on the side and I had kicked him in the head. But now he said I didn't kick him in the head. I had pushed his face into the ground, which I also didn't do. I did push him. I didn't lay a hand or uh, a foot or a knee on his neck. The third uh, witness was uh, the, the journeyman agent that was with the trainee. We, we, we call him Ram. But um, he was a friend of mine. And, uh, and, and he got, he got kind of dragged into this, but, uh, he testified that he was walking up and he saw me put my foot on the alien, which I did, but I didn't punch him. However, he was about 80 yards away, but he can hear the kick 80 yards away, a football field, three quarters of a football field away. Think about that. Three, 80 yards away, and he can hear me kick the guy on the ground. It was a hell of a kick, wasn't it? It was such a hell of a kick that the guy can't remember what side I hit him on a year later. So that lasted from Monday afternoon until 10.30 the next morning. And then the government was about to rest on that case. I was like, this is it. This is 18 months going to last the next day. I was ecstatic. Then the, then they asked the, the judge to approach because they had some additional information. So my attorney and the prosecution approached the bench. Now, when I say the prosecution, they had, and on the prosecution table, they had a woman working the media. She was working to proje the projections. She had all the evidence and pictures and all that. Then they had the, U the uh, assistant U.S. attorney, Bill, Bill Bauman. Then they had a civil rights trial lawyer that they brought down from Washington, D.C. Uh, by the name of Brent Allen Gray. And right behind them on the first row of the benches was the Mexican consulate. So they kept kind of like leaning over and talking. And on my side, it was just me and my attorney. And, you know, my family was there. And um, my, my attorney's uh, paralegal who was writing everything down. So they approach the bench. My attorney comes back and tells me they've got some additional evidence. I'm like, what? That... <laughs> I'm sorry, folks, but I get all heated when I think about this and I, I, I bring myself back to there. 
the prosecution said they wanted to bring in the drug smuggler that 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 slammed me on the ground. And I started getting all bent out of the shade. I was like, "What? Why? That's not got that's got nothing to do with this." And I was sitting there arguing, and the, he told me that the judge already admitted it. And then the doors opened up. Now, to give you a, a picture of this, I know you can't see me as I'm waving my hands left and right. I'm at the defense table. The door, the judge is to, the judge and the bench, and everybody is to my right. The prosecution is dead ahead of me, and the the benches and the uh, the the doors to enter to my left. So the doors open and in walks this guy that 18 months earlier was trying to choke me out. And behind him was a U.S. Marshal because technically the guy was still in custody. They had ridded him out of prison and transported him across Texas to testify against me. Now, think about that. If you had committed the crime or you got busted and you were in jail and they gave you the opportunity to get out of jail. So if you testify against the cop that put you there, would that be a no brainer? So they ridded this guy out of the prison. They, they brought him across Texas and here he is in my courtroom and he scanned the room, looked left and right. And then he saw me. And when he saw me, his eyes got small and he he focused right in on me and he was walking forward. My heartbeat started racing. And I and I got up out of my chair and I stood up at the ready. I didn't know what else to do. My attorneys grabbed my arm, was like, sit down. I told him to stop. I told him to stop because I don't know how many of you are out there that have had somebody try to kill him, that tried to kill you. It's one thing when somebody tries to kill you. It's another thing when you see that person in jail. But when they bring that person out of the jail and put them back in the same room with you, that's a that's a whole other feeling in itself. My, my heart's racing right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, I stood there looking at him, and he walked all the way down past the bench, past my table, walked towards the bench. And the whole time he was looking at me, he even turned back to look at me as he was as he walked past me. He got up on the bench and and I can out, out of my peripheral, I can see people looking back and forth like what's going on, what's going on. And he got sworn in. He had an, he had the US marshal behind him and he had an interpreter with him. He got sworn in and he sat down. And when he sat down, I sat down. I crossed my legs and I crossed my arms and he was just eyeballing me and every time they asked him a question he would turn his head to the interpreter and to the jury he would answer the question and then he turned his head right back to me and then they asked him another question he would turn his head to the right answer the question to the interpreter and to the jury and then turn his head right back to me for the next four hours this is what happened I didn't move I assumed that same position right on him for four hours so this guy's story was that him and some friends, all they were doing was bringing 800 pounds of dope into the United States. They were just bringing their dope. They didn't want to bother nobody. And they just wanted to deliver their, their 800 pounds of marijuana and go back to their country. But somewhere in between there, they ran into me and my crew. And that's where their plan got screwed up. So this guy claims that I was chasing him and he twisted his foot. Even though he had barbed wire marks all over him from hitting the barbed wire, he twisted his foot and I was able to easily catch him and I held him down 
and I pulled my gloves out of my pockets and put my gloves on and then proceeded to pounce him. That was his testimony. Now, I had a supervisor of mine on later on uh, during the trial who testified that um, he really didn't like it when I wore my gloves around the station because I didn't like touching things. There was so many germs and everything going on at the station, staff infections sometimes, that uh, I always had my gloves on. And if I was out working, I always had my gloves on. They were Kevlar, they were leather and Kevlar. In case somebody tried to cut me, I always had my gloves on. And he knows that. And he testified that it, w- it would be a very rare moment if I didn't have my gloves on. So he didn't believe that for a minute. So apparently they coached him into saying that I put my gloves on. And I'll tell you why later on down the road when it comes to the sentencing part. So he finished his testimony and he got up and went, started walking. And he, he focused on me again. And as he was walking past, I, I stood up again. And then he walked all the way out, and he was gone. But it was a tense four hours while that was happening. So now it was uh, it was my my turn to testify, and um, which was probably my biggest mistake because I didn't get all the coaching that the government witnesses got. Uh, I was telling the truth, and my attorney just told me to tell the truth, and that's what I did. And I'm not saying that I would lie on the stand because I have no reason to lie because I did what I was taught. But I would have omitted some things um, that I was taught because they use my own words against me. And again, I'll explain to you why here in a little bit. So I'm just going to hit on the highlights because this was, like I said, this was a five-day trial. And I'm not going to go by every single thing. I'm just going to go ahead and hit the highlights for you. So we went back and forth. And the U.S. attorney comes up and he says, so Mr. Brugman... He says, you are, so you ran up on these people and you wound your leg up to Cincinnati. And then while he's doing that, he, uh, he stretches his leg back like he's going to about to kick a field goal and, um, and says, uh, and then you continue to kick the bejesus out of him with these devastating Gary Brugman kicks. And then you ran up to him and said, so, so you like to run, huh? And I looked at them and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. That never happened. I said, I ran up to them and I pushed them on the ground with the bottom of my foot after I covered my weapon. And I asked them, why are you running? I didn't say, so you like to run, huh? And then kick them. After I pushed them, I asked them, why are you running? And anybody who's seen any episode of Cops or any TV show, that's, that's what you ask. That's what you ask. And why, why are you running? And he tells me, well, why do you care why they're running? Were you going to put him on an exercise program? You're going to take him out for a little jog? And he he made motions with his hands and shaking his wrist. You're going to take him out for a little jog? You concerned about the health? And I looked at him and I told him, no, because in the heat of the moment, if you ask them, why are you running? They'll tell you right off the bat. Well, I'm, I'm, I've been deported. I got dope. I got warrants. So he says, well, why didn't you just walk up to them and put your hands on their shoulders and ask them to sit down nicely. And I said, I'm not putting my hands on anybody. And he said, why not? So I told him, because there's a gun. And he starts looking through his paperwork. I don't see anybody, anything here about anybody having a gun. I said, I had a gun. 
And he says, well, what difference does that make? I mean, was it, did you have it pulled out? Was it holstered? I said, it was holstered. So why were you afraid? I said, because I'm not going to put my hands on anybody because you can be attacked and have your weapon taken away from you, plain and simple. That's why they taught us to use your leg as an extension of your arm because you don't want to get into that person's circle. So then he continued and gave me the use of force policy. Now, when I was in the Coast Guard, I spent many years, years teaching the use of force policy. Now, those of you that are police officers listening to me now, in the past 20 years, some things may have changed. Some procedures may have changed, uh, changed with the times. So just bear with me because remember, this is 20 years ago. Things were different. So um, he hands me the use of force policy and he tells me to read the underlying sections in level two. And I'm like, start reading. I started reading the whole thing and he said, no, no, no. Just read the underlying parts. I said, you can't sit there and pick and choose what part of the use of force you're going to bring up. It's either the whole thing or nothing. You sit in an office and nitpick what I'm doing while I'm out there in the field. And he says, just read the underlying part. I said, because I told him that this is just a summary for agents to use. This is just a, a guideline. And he says, a guideline. And he snatches it out of my hand. And he says, that's the second time I've heard this use of force policy referred to as a guideline. It, like it's just some piece of paper. Is that what you think of the Constitution, Mr. Brugman? So I asked him to hand it back to me. But he wouldn't. So I asked the judge if, he, if I can point something out. The judge made him give it back to me. So I grabbed it. And I went to the back. Mind you, I know the use of force policy. Like the back of my hand. And I went to the back. Where it says, Summary. And it's right in the summary of the use of force policy used by the government. It says this use of force policy is to be used as a guideline for agents in the field to make proper decisions. Nothing in there is set in stone because every situation is different. The veins popped out of his forehead. He snagged it from my hand. He he walked away and uh, he just he just continued on and on trying to belittle me. Um, they brought one thing that they did was they brought a, uh, a they had an allegation that I had punched a 15 year old kid in the face that was sitting in our processing room. So they had an anon apparently they had an anonymous call from Mexico. They had no name, they had no body, they had no nothing. And this kid apparently had been punched in the face in our processing room. And uh he was trying to say that it was me, but they didn't say it was me. It was just they said he got punched. So they just happened to bring that up in front of the jury just to put that in the jury's head. My lawyer objected. Uh the judge so, uh, sustained it and told the jury that they're supposed to forget about that, not to admit that. But it was already in their heads. Whether they admit it or, or not, it's still in their heads. So, but um, during one of the recesses, I was uh, in the restroom and in comes the civil rights trial lawyer from D.C., Brent Allen Gray. And uh, there was a window in the restroom, and you can hear the partying going on outside. I mean, it was Halloween in Austin, so keep Austin weird, right? So everything was going on. And he says, Halloween in, in Austin, Texas. Are you going out tonight? And I looked at him, I was like, no, you? And he says, no, I got a trial to win. So with that, I asked him, do you really think I'm guilty? Do you really think I did this? Do you believe that? 
And uh, I don't, I forgot exactly how I worded it, but that's what I asked him. And he says, it doesn't matter what I believe. He goes, I got a $50 million budget to make sure you go to prison. And you're going to prison because I'm winning this trial. It's just a matter of how long. So see you in court. And he kind of washed his hands, smiled, and walked out. I kind of stood there in the middle of the bathroom because I felt like somebody just dumped a bucket of warm water on my head and it just, I can feel it running down my body. I felt it in my chest, felt it in my stomach, felt it in my legs. And um, I knew I was, I knew I was screwed right there. And, and um, I had been praying before the trial, for the 18 months before the trial, shooting back a little bit. At first, I was like, ah, God's got me. I ain't worried about this. God's got me. Then, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't go away. And I was like, dear Lord, you've uh, put me in some hairy situations before. And I've managed to make it out. And you've always had my back. You're cutting a little close this time. How about we uh, end this already, huh? Well, that didn't happen. Things kept getting worse, kept going on. And I got down and I prayed on my knees again. And I was like, all right, Lord, I know you've made the decision of what's going to happen to me eons ago. I, I accept that. Whatever your will is what will be done. Just please don't let me lose my faith. But at one point that started happening. Well, not, not that I started losing my faith, but, you know, God is your father. And, and you know, kids get angry at their dads. So I was having a bad day. And this is before the trial. I was having a bad day one time and I'm driving down the road and I'm praying and I'm angry and I'm praying and I'm angry and all of a sudden I'm not praying anymore. I'm just yelling at God. And uh, I told him, I said, I don't understand why you hate me so much. I said, you know what? I've seen Lethal Weapon. I'll just hate you back. That didn't work out very well for me because here I am at the trial and um, I thought I was doing all right, but I guess I was wrong and my father had to teach me a lesson. So... We come back in and it's time for closing arguments. So the assistant U.S. attorney comes up and he steps to the podium, which was right in the middle between the prosecution and the defense, my table, and states his case. And he states his case and says that um, the alien's telling the truth and the only person that's telling the truth here is the trainee agent, because all of the other agents, including my supervisors and other field agents, and at that time, the Border Patrol had senior patrol agents, all of them, we're all liars. We're all dirty and corrupt. He's the only one because he hasn't been corrupt yet. He's the only one that can tell the truth, so we had to believe him. So my attorney goes up and uh, pleads my case for 40 minutes. But then... And I didn't know this was going to happen. Then the uh, civil rights trial lawyer is up and he grabs the podium and moves the podium right in front of the jury like he's preaching. So you get 40 minutes for closing arguments. So the U.S. attorney took 20. My attorney took 40. And then this civil rights trial lawyer took the other 20. And he stood there and, and I got I got to hand it to him. This dude is really, really good. Because for a split second, I was listening to him for a split second. He had me convinced I was guilty until I realized, wait, wait, that didn't happen like that. But um, he sat there five feet in front of the jury and preached like, he, preached like he was Joe Osteen. So the jury deliberated for about five hours. 
And they came back, and I was standing there. And uh, the judge, the judge's name was William Wayne Justice. William Wayne Justice. He was a he was an old guy. He was a senior fer- senior federal judge in all of Texas at the time, and he loved that title. But he was pretty much a, a liberal judge. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that Austin was a real liberal city. I didn't know that. So the uh, the juror comes up, and he says. He says that they found me, we the jury find the defendant Gary Brugman guilty. The court clerk that sits in front of the judge covered her mouth and said, (gasps) and started to tear up and everybody started looking at each other. And you know what? For the second time in two days, there was that bucket of water again all over me. I just felt it pour down on me. I looked over, my mom was crying. And um, I didn't know what to do. So the judge allowed me to stay out on bond pending an appeal. I uh, ended up leaving with uh, my girlfriend at the time, her family, my family, and my attorney. And we jumped in the uh, Suburban. And we were going to go to the hotel to figure out what our next plan would be, but I, uh, I I wasn't having it. And we were sitting in Austin traffic trying to get to the other side of Austin. And I, I just walked out of the Suburban and I left. And I was walking and I walked down to Congress, Con- Congress Avenue. And there's a high bridge on Congress and I sat at that bridge and I stood up on top of it and I got back down. And I stood back up again. And I got back down. And then I said, you know what? The embassy suite is across the street. And the uh, the uh, Office of the Inspector General investigators, the special agents from the Office of the Inspector General were staying there. So I walked across the street. And there they go with the AUSA having a glass of wine, cheering, toasting. And um, and I walked up to him and I, I kind of stared at him and I, I really, really, really wanted to give him a piece of my mind, but I, I, I didn't have anything to say to him. And they just looked at me and the look of fear in their eyes was funny because I was, I don't know what I was. I, I was, I, I'd like to say I was kind of out of body, but um, I left. I left. They were kind of at their ready. They didn't know what to do. So I left and I went back to the bridge. And then I called my boss, Jimmy Hellickson. And uh, he told me not to move. He was on his way. So he came. And when he came, I was actually up on the bridge again. And he talked me down. And uh, we walked. And I almost got hit by a car. It just barely missed me. And if I was seeing it coming, I probably would have taken the extra step. So I stayed out on bond until the sentencing. And the sentencing was in March of 2003. And my patrol agent in charge, Kevin Brashear, and the, I believe at the time he was the uh, assistant patrol agent in charge, Randy Clark, they were both at my sentencing. And the U.S. attorney, Bill Bauman, and that other guy, Brent Allen Gray, civil rights trial lawyer from Washington, D.C., he was there as well. 
And I had told my lawyer, because they were trying to give me seven years. That's what they were recommending. I had told my lawyer that if I get seven years, they might as well tack on another 10 to 15 because somebody was going to get hurt. <laughs> and I meant that too. But um, my lawyer was trying to get the judge to dismiss the case at the sentencing or at least just give me probation or something because he had noted that if this was a municipal, county, or state court, it would be considered a misdemeanor. It would be a simple assault. And they're trying to put me away for seven years for pushing the guy on the ground for doing my job. And the U.S. attorney agreed that it would be it would have been classified as a simple assault, but the federal government doesn't have a charge of simple assault, so this is what we had to go with. So just because they didn't have to go with simple assault, they were trying to put me in for seven years because that's what the guidelines were. Sounds like a crock shit to me. Pardon my French. So they, uh, I was looking right at him when he was saying this, and and. The district court officer, I can see him, he was watching me because I was just waiting for the judge to say the number. And he had came out and said that he was going to sentence me to 27 months. So even still, that's two years, but I was expecting seven years. So I rolled with it and uh, moved up to San Antonio from there. So that was in March. So in June, May or June of that year in 2003, I get a call from a Spanish TV show called Aquí y Ahora. It's kind of like one of those Dateline shows, but in Spanish. And they said they wanted to come talk to me about my story. And I kind of debated it. I talked to a couple of friends of mine. They told me that, hey, man, that's a pretty uh, liberal um, TV show. You better be careful. So I talked to them. They guaranteed me that they weren't going to jam me up or anything. And I found this really interesting. Now, you, so are you. So you really need to pay attention to this. So I um, I agreed to the show. And you can find the show on YouTube. And at the beginning of the show, it says that this is a story of two Hispanics, you know, one protecting the border and one trying to make fun of his vigilance. And they go into it from there. They interview both of us, me and the illegal alien I pushed. And mind you, now he's not dressed in black. And now he it's not the seventh time he's tried to smuggle himself into the United States. And now he looks like a, a, a poor little waif, a, a nefarious little waif, as, as I say. But he, they, they try to make him look like a poor little guy. And um, during the trial, my attorney had asked him in several different ways, are you being compensated for being here for your testimony? He said, no. Is the government paying you in any way? No. Are you being made any promises for your testimony or for being here? No. And and I forgot the exact questions. It's all in the trial testimony, but my attorney asked him at least five or six different ways if he was promised any money or funds or anything for being here. He said, no, he had actually lost several jobs for coming to testify. So... We did this TV show, and uh, it was a good TV show, but they completely omitted the part of the drug smuggler. That never aired at all. And I told the truth, and uh, they they told me that they really wanted to talk to the trainee agent, but he wouldn't talk to them. And uh, they wished they knew where he lived. So I drew him a map. 
I knew where he lived, so I drew him a map. I said, go there. And if you see, if you're telling the truth, what have you got to hide, right? They went to his house. He didn't want to talk to him. So they put the camera across the street. Then they went and knocked on his door again. And uh, he opened the door. And in Spanish, he says, Mr. Alegría, I'm here to bother you again. And he's like, no, 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 no. Boom. And shut the door and uh, report his face. find it kind of comical myself. So the story goes on. And it turns up that the illegal alien says that he was coming to the United States so he can earn money because his daughter had terminal cancer and he needed to save up money for chemotherapy. Ain't that something that should have came out at the trial? Isn't that something that we should have known about? So the episode goes on of this program. And at the very end, you know, the host comes back on because they were field reporters. The host comes back on and she says, Gary Brugman, in Spanish, by the way, Gary Brugman has been convicted and sentenced to 27 months and he has been terminated from the Border Patrol and he spends his time between San Antonio and Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, uh, waiting for an appeal. And he says, for his part, Miguel Angel Jimenez Sadania had been deported back to Mexico and is living with his with his mother and his daughter who has completed her her therapy for chemotherapy. Who paid for that? Who paid f- six months later after the trial? Who paid for his daughter's chemotherapy for her terminal cancer? Did he suddenly hit the lottery? Did Mexico pay for that? Because they should have paid for it in the beginning. We could have vo- avoided all of this. Or did the United States pay for it? For 20 years, I've been trying to find out. And I, I can't. I don't know how. I've I've uh, filed some uh, Freedom Information Acts, never got anything in repl- in in return. But uh, yeah, so six months after my trial, this guy's daughter complete completed her uh, chemotherapy, and the whoever paid for it is a ghost because we don't know. And it doesn't surprise me because this whole thing just smells like crap. Reminds me of a. Uh, case involving two other Border Patrol agents, Ignacio Ramos and Jose Compeon. These guys in El Paso um, jumped a drug smuggler. Agent Compeon was, got into a fist fight with the, with the smuggler. And uh, when his partner, Agent Ramos, showed up, they, uh, they believed the guy had a gun. He had something in his hand. And he took off across the river and, and they fired at him shot him in the butt and uh, they were back in Mexico so the US attorney got hold of the guy and gave the drug smuggler immunity to testify against these agents and they were found guilty and and were convicted and uh, sentenced to 11 and 12 years respectively so while this guy was out on immunity he was smuggling more dope and got busted, but the U.S. attorney let him off because he was under immunity. So, you know, really nothing surprises me when it comes to the federal government. I don't trust the government, but we need government. If not, then all we would have is chaos in this country. But um, I was going to school at San Antonio College while I was out on bond. And, you know, in March of that year, I ended up going to the um, appeals court. Finally got my hearing. 
So me and my attorney and my family, we packed up and we went, because I, I wanted to be there. So we went to the to New Orleans, to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it was three judges, Judge Reevely, Demos, and one other judge, I can't remember his name. And my attorney stated my case, and, you know, they asked him some questions, if and how, why he answered them. And then the government had said that sent down a young lady by the name of Tova Calderon. Couldn't have been older than 24, 25 years old. And she had a binder with page protectors and everything about my case in there. And she was just reading out of the book. Judges started asking her questions. She had no idea how to answer them. She had to look for the answers in the binder. Judges kind of like, judges kind of got upset and told her that they can't believe that this case is so important to the government that they would send an inexperienced attorney down to the Court of Appeals and not somebody who was familiar with the case. So naturally, I was ecstatic because I thought I had won because the judges saw through all the BS that the government was dishing out. Well, three weeks after that, got a call from my attorney and they had upheld the verdict. So next step was to find out when I was supposed to self-surrender. So a couple of weeks go by and every time my phone rings, I'm dreading it because I keep thinking it's my attorney who's going to call me and tell me to self-surrender. I um, One night I was out with a buddy of mine on our motorcycles and we'll just call him Shorty. And we went to a local bar slash club that we frequented. It was police friendly. We knew the owners. We knew the bartenders. And that night we happened to know the band that was playing. So that night, for some reason, me and him were rock stars. We, uh, one of our, one of our favorite bartenders was down in the pit. There was a, there was a booth, and it had a little bar next to it, and it was right next to the stage. So we were having fun with the band. The bartender knew what we were drinking, and we had our own booth. And I don't know what happened, but everybody just started generating towards us, wanting to take pictures with us, wanting to hang out with us, bringing us shots. We had no idea what it was, but I finally figured it out. So when the night was over, we ended up closing down the place. I ended up getting home around four in the morning. And uh, about five, my door about comes off the hinges. And uh, it was it was a U.S. Marshal was coming to get me. I was in my boxer briefs. I opened up the door. They put me down on the ground, sat me in a chair, cuffed me up. They pushed my mom, who wanted to know what was going on. They pushed her down to the ground and um, and told her not to move. She was 72 years old at the time, and they took me away. So I spent the next two years incarcerated after that. And with that, I'm going to start closing this uh, segment out because that's going to be episode three, folks. So... I'll let you know what happened. I went. I ended up going to five different prisons. I was at the contract prison in San Antonio, the transfer center in Oklahoma, the low security in Coleman, Florida. Got jammed up. Ended up going to the high security penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, and I finished out in Yazoo City, Mississippi. 
And I'll tell you all those about all those Con Air and bus rides and everything on the next episode. And again, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank uh, God for allowing me to have this little podcast. And of course, I want to thank my mom for loving me the way she does and raising me the way that she did and sacrificing everything that she did for me. I want to shout out to my stepdaughters, Nia and Ziva. I love you girls. I'll see you soon. And I also want to shout out to San Antonio police officer and uh, Naval Petty Officer Jennifer, friend of mine overseas. She's got some uh, dengue fever. She wasn't doing too well. She's doing a little better now. And I'm going to ship some prayers out to her, and I ask that y'all do too. She is in uh, Djibouti, and she's serving our country overseas. So with that, God bless y'all. I will catch y'all next time. Next episode drops on Thursday, and we will bounce off some more guardrails. All right, y'all be good. Peace. That concludes this episode of the Gary Brugman Podcast. Please like and subscribe on social media. Be well, stay frosty, and always watch your six.